Good morning. It's good to see your smiling faces. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you describe in this section of your word our spiritual life as warfare. And that can be confusing and that can be misunderstood. Um, Lord, help us to understand this imagery properly so that we can obey you properly. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, and hearts to embrace and obey. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Probably one of the most prominent images throughout Christian history for the church and the spiritual life has been spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And as soon as you use that image, there's lots of different ways that you can take that. Um, think, about, think about famous Christian stories or famous Christian books or even famous Christian movies. Right? A lot of them have that war imagery, something like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, think about church history. How much of church history was actually consumed with real warfare? Right? So this war imagery is powerful. It's emotional. It's emotive. Right? But it's also important that we understand it properly. Because if we don't understand it properly we could make some real grave mistakes, as has been done through church history. So I want to read the text today, and then I want, to, I want to do three things today with this text. I want to first define spiritual warfare, as given in this text. And then I want to look at the text further to understand our weapons and our armor. And then I want to see how Paul modeled spiritual warfare in this text. Because I think how he models it in this text actually helps us actually define what spiritual warfare is for every Christian. I actually considered naming this sermon spiritual warfare for everyone. But I'll, I'll explain what I mean as we go along. But I, I decided not to do that today knowing that I'm going to explain that along the way. So let's read the text. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Hear the word of the Lord. So today we want to do two, three things. We want to define spiritual warfare. We want to understand our weapons and armor, and then we want to see how Paul models spiritual warfare for us. I want to talk about defining the war properly from verses six, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. If we define or misdefine spiritual warfare, we're going to make some big mistakes. Anybody hear of the Crusades? Right? The assumption of the Crusades was that government and the church were the same thing. And a proper government forced people to believe the way the church believed. And that's not how this text defines spiritual warfare. We won't get into all the history of the Crusades. But that is a literal definition that spiritual warfare is warfare. And that's not how the scriptures define spiritual warfare. If we talk about the battleground, if we misdefined who the battleground is or what the battleground is, we may make some grave mistakes as well. If we define the battleground as our culture, we're going to make some mistakes. Because we're going to fight and rail against the culture and we're going to forget the gospel. When I was growing up, there was an organization called the Moral Majority, right? And I grew up in the kind of church that really supported that movement. And oftentimes in the culture, that movement forgot the gospel and just railed about politics. That's not what this text is talking about. Now, does this, do the scriptures speak about things that end up affecting what we do and believe in politics? Yes, absolutely. But that's not the same thing as saying that the warfare is not politics. So what is it? Well, let's look at the text. He says this in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done, and having done all, to stand firm. Who's the enemy in this text? The satanic realm. So what's the battleground? Let me suggest to you that the battleground is not the culture, is not the world, the battleground is the heart of the human who does not know God. Because the satanic realms are fighting for those souls. Does that make sense? So in other words, we don't look at 
those around us who don't know Christ as the enemy. They're the battleground. Who's the enemy? Behind them is the satanic realm, the demonic realm, the angelic realm, warring for the souls of individuals. And that's who we're fighting. So let's not mistake those around us who we're trying to share the gospel with as the enemy. That allows us to have a heart of compassion toward those people. And that allows us to not have that kind of a angry edge that some Christians can have and that we can be guilty of having if we're not careful. So notice what he says, though. He, he actually is very, very specific. We're putting on this armor of God that he's going to talk about here shortly. And he says, we're going to stand against the schemes of the devil. So it's very specific. This angelic realm is headed by the devil. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we don't talk too much about these things, but the scriptures, if you take the time to to chase it down and figure it out, describe a spiritual reality that's behind this physical world. And so if we could kind of peel back this lens and look into the spiritual world, we would actually see a whole world in the spirit world where there are demons and angels who are active in the world. And if you look at, say, a book like Daniel, there's some spiritual warfare seen in Daniel where an angel is trying to deliver a message to Daniel and he is thwarted by a demon and that demon is thwarting him and so the angel has to go get a stronger angel to come. So these are the realities that we're dealing with. Unless we think that that's not happening in our culture, it's happening in our culture. In the last days, First Timothy 4 says... In the last days, there will be people who fall away and follow doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. Do you believe that the spiritual realm is oppressing and affecting the world around you? Or do you think your culture is neutral? The culture around us is not neutral. God is very clear about that. You're either for God or you're against God. There is no neutral ground. And there is doctrines of demons. Unless you think that our culture isn't that, think for a second. And I, I'm not trying to be over the top or I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. But tell me where you get the idea that castrating children is a good thing. Chemically or physically or otherwise. Do you see? There's a whole spiritual realm out there. But listen, folks. Those people who we disagree with, they're not the enemy. They're the battleground. They're the people who are affected by that demonic realm. And we are compassionately trying to reach those people for Jesus Christ. And to pull them out of that world of darkness. So let's define the war properly. It's an interesting repeated term through this first section. The term is to stand. Right? Am I standing right now? Yeah, sure. There's lots of different ways that we can think about standing, right? There's the... Sorry, piano. 
That's not what this term is. This is a very specific term for stand that has a military connotation. Probably the closest cultural um, way that we use the word stand that is parallel to this would be something like a goal line stand for American football, right? When you take that big line, the offense comes up and tries to get that ball one yard into the end zone and you make a goal line stand. That's what this term implies. It implies more like I'm a military guy with a shield and a sword and now I'm standing, right? It's an it's, it's defensive and offensive at the same time. And this text talks about standing. So it's really tempting for us to think about that as just a purely defensive posture. But that's really, that's really a mistake, I think, to think that. Because the way warfare works was a lot different than modern warfare. Modern warfare, you're standing and you're ching, 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 or now probably a drone comes in and boom, Right? That's modern warfare. Ancient Near East warfare, particularly Mediterranean, such Roman warfare, was man on man. Number of men lined up. And I, I always struggle watching these modern ad movies about old wars where they have this huge line of like 100 people this way and they all charge for 100 yards. Well, they, wait, I can't fight anymore because I ran 100 yards. And, I, and then you have this massive battle that goes on for 20 minutes. If you've ever done anything like wrestling or martial arts or boxing, you know you can't do that. What did they do? They grouped up into really tight formations and they walked together. And if, we'll, we'll explain a little bit more as we go along. But it's almost like a row of, let's just say row of five people with five people behind them with five people behind them. And the people in front have their shields and their swords up like this and they're their, their shields are interlocked and the people in back, if the arrows are coming in, they put their shields up over top and it's like watching this human tank move forward slowly and then when they get close to somebody, they stand. Well, is that defensive or offensive? Eh, kind of both. It's kind of both. So I don't want us to think about this as a passive defensive move. It's both defensive and offensive at the same time. So we are going out into the world on a daily basis trying to represent Jesus and win the battle for the hearts and souls of those we know around us. And that's the spiritual warfare that he's talking about. Some of us may remember the book, This Present Darkness. And some of us may have imagery of spiritual warfare as somebody walking around with a crucifix and casting out demons and angels and demons coming out into the visible realm. That's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about us going out on a daily basis, living our lives in front of people, living holy lives, and then telling them why we live holy lives and why our lives are different because we have a savior in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the warfare. So he says this, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. And that's another word. See the word stand in there? It's another word for standing. And we do this in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. To stand firm. So God calls us to this spiritual warfare where we live what looks like pretty normal lives. 
But when we interact with those people around us who are being influenced by that spiritually dark world, we're speaking to them about Jesus. We're speaking to them truth in a loving way. And when we do that, that's spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare. So that's how I think we should define from the scriptures what it means to fight a spiritual war. Well, what a... What are our tools? What's the armor and what's our weapons? Look what he says in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So there we have it. A catalog, if you will, or a list of our spiritual weapons. So having girded our loins about with the belt of truth. Now, we tend to think of a belt as what holds our pants up, right? So that's not quite how that worked in the armor world of Rome. So what would happen is you would wear that belt and certainly it would Hold your pants up or whatever. But what, what it did is actually had, it actually held up a bunch of strips of leather that formed what looked kind of like a skirt. If you've ever seen um, some of the movies that deal with old ancient Roman warriors. And that, actually that belt of truth hung down. I mean, the belt held it up, but it hung down those pieces of leather. And those pieces of leather then stopped any glancing blows that might come off a shield and might cut you in the area of your loin. And of course, there's the loins that are a very dangerous place, but there's also some very sensitive things. If you get cut in the middle between your legs, it's all, it can be almost instantaneous death because there's some arteries and veins that run down there. And so you can literally cut the inside of your leg and be dead in 30 seconds because you lose all your blood in, in nearly instantaneously. So the belt of truth. So this belt, which is the truth. It never ceases to amaze me the propensity for modern Christians to downplay truth. We, we don't want to use truth as a cudgel. We don't want to use truth as some sort of a whip to thrash people with. But the scriptures are very clear. We're supposed to speak the truth. Amen? Is that hard sometimes? Yeah. We're supposed to believe the truth. When we speak and believe truth, that's part of our spiritual warfare. We live in a culture where truth is downplayed, where truth is personal, where truth is not really a thing. And one of the things as Christians that we need to do is be willing to disagree with people and say, no, there is such a thing as truth. One plus one does equal two. That truth also then protects us because when we are bombarded by the messages that the world around us is receiving from that dark 
evil world that protects us because the truth, we recognize falsehood because we know truth. We recognize falsehood because we know truth. Many of you have heard this illustration. It's often used and it's, it's often used because it's a really good one. The way to f- train people to find counterfeits, banks just give people lots of real money, 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 real money. Real money real. You get my point. They want to show them a lot of real money. <laughs> and then what do they do? They sneak in a counterfeit. Oh, boom, obvious. How do they do it? They get people so comfortable with the truth that when the false bill comes in, they immediately recognize it. They may not even be able to verbalize why they recognize it, but they do. That's how important truth is to the believer. We are people of truth who speak the truth in love. Right? We speak the truth in love, Ephesians chapter 4. So the belt of truth is our first piece of armor. The second piece of armor is called the breastplate of righteousness. Now there's all sorts of discussions about is this breastplate of righteousness our righteousness that we live out in obedience to God or is it the righteousness of Christ put on us? I'm not so sure that Paul wants to be that specific. It is true that any righteousness we have is from God, amen? That when we come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, we receive the righteousness of Christ. So that's very possibly what this means. And that does protect us. But this text, I'm not so sure that necessarily is just limited to that. Could this also mean the righteousness that we live out when we obey God on a daily basis? It could mean that as well. And I, I'm not willing to commit to either. And so I'm going to preach both. And you decide if I'm right or wrong. And which one I'm right or wrong about. But think about the breastplate, right? It covers what modern police officers would call the central mass, right? Those people who are trained to shoot, you hit center mass, right? You aim for this part. Why? This is where all your really, really important organs are, right? I can live without an arm. I can live without a leg. It's hard to live without your torso. So the breastplate protects particularly the heart, but all of the core without which you will not live kind of organs. And that is the righteousness both that we've received from Christ and that we live out on a daily basis. Because the spiritual warfare that we're involved with demands that we go out into the world and we live holy lives. You work at a bank. Your supervisor comes up and asks you to fudge on a number for a report. Probably wouldn't be that obvious, right? A a problem. But you're working with somebody and they say, well, can you just punch my time clock in for me? I got to leave early, but I don't want to get in trouble because I didn't get permission to do this. Can you just punch out early for me? Or punch out for me so I can leave early? There is an integrity that we need to have as we live this spiritual warfare out. Um, I don't know 
why this happens or how this happens. I know why it happens. I don't know how it happens. But how many of you have been in a situation where somebody says something inappropriate and they go, oh, sorry, because you're in the room? Have you ever had that before? Did you ever tell them not to say that? Did you ever twist their arm and go, please don't ever say that in front of me again? They naturally do it. Why? Because when you're living this Christian life, you're going to have this breastplate of righteousness that you are living out in your community and they see that by seeing your behavior and they go, oh, I know this person lives by a different standard. I'm going to apologize because I broke that standard. Or maybe you've experienced where some of your colleagues go to lunch and you don't get invited because you know that they want to have, they don't want to have off topic. They don't want to have conversations in front of you that they want to have by themselves. Don't take that as an insult. Take that as a compliment if that happens to you. Assuming it happens because of your righteousness, not because you're annoying. (laughs) Let's not be annoying people, right? But let's be the kind of people that without even saying a word, people look at you and go, there's something different about that person. There's something different about that man. There's something different about that woman. There's something different about that high school student. There's something different about that elementary school student. There's something different because you're walking around with the breastplate of righteousness. I love this one. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, some translations have the preparation of the gospel of peace. That phrase... It's not a bad translation. I think that's a pretty good translation. The idea there is that the feet, we'll talk about those in a second, are wearing a special kind of shoe that is prepared to speak gospel. Right? We have gospel shoes, if you want to call them that. Now, if you think about warfare, we don't want to think too much. I don't want to get too gory here. But if you're in one of those formations of people and you've got this right this roman formation where you've got all these lines of people in a spear and you got people behind you and you're slowly working your way forward killing people the ground becomes very slippery right i won't think about entrails and blood and right not too pleasant but very very slippery and it's really important because what happens if you slip you just might die Because one of the most vulnerable positions to be on is on the ground in a war. So they wore these shoes, right? They were more, they wouldn't really be shoes. They were more like a boot than a sandal. And on the bottom, they would actually have little spikes in them. Uh, Some of them, some of you might recognize the term hobnails, right? So, and the modern equivalent would be showing up to a football game with cleats on. Right, so that you could stay on your feet and not on the ground. Well, that's what it's like if you're prepared to speak the gospel. Right? That's what it's like. We have cleats on in the world, and we're not going to slip up as much 
in the war against the war for the souls of men against the evil demonic realm if we're prepared to speak the gospel. Are we? I think there's two elements to that. Am I prepared? And to me, that's a heart condition. Do I want to speak the gospel to my colleagues? Do I seek out opportunities? Do I pray for opportunities to speak to my colleagues about the gospel? Do I plan opportunities? So I think there's kind of a disposition that we need to have that's prepared for the gospel. But then there's also knowledge of how to speak the gospel. Do you have some go-to verses that you use to speak the gospel? Are you comfortable explaining the gospel to somebody? Can you explain the need that we have because of our sin? The solution that God gave us in the person of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection and paying for our sins so that we could become like him? So God calls us to not only know truth, not only to have righteousness, but to be prepared to speak. Because that's, that's how the gospel goes out. So I know it was very, very popular, especially in the last 20 to 30 years. Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Have you heard that phrase? All right, I know it's very popular. Can you speak? Can you, can you share the gospel without words? Okay, let me give you a parallel. Cook some food. If necessary, you know, cook a meal. If necessary, use food. Does that work? No. Yes, it's important that we live godly lives. Yes, it's important that we do things to show the love of Christ in our community. But that if that never results in sharing the gospel, the gospel has not gone out. Folks, it's impossible for us to share the gospel with our lives. We can reinforce the gospel with our lives, but we share the gospel with our mouths or with a pen by challenging people lovingly to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Are we prepared for that? Look at verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I love that picture, right? The picture is we got flaming arrows coming in. Right? And you're able to just pick up the shield and go doink, doink, doink. Well, what are some of those, what are some of those arrows? Well, doubt. Right? Temptation. Right? Faith. Faith is how we block those off. Now, in our culture and in the movies, we love individualistic battle scenes, right? Where this massive sword goes, right? That's not how ancient Near East battles worked. It was shields often interlocked. Remember that five by five, if you think about five people, those shields would be interlocked and then the shields behind would be overhead. And so if you think about the shield of faith, shields actually work best when you were working with your neighbor, with your fellow army member, your fellow soldier. And I think there is a sense in which 
Paul picked that one for faith on purpose because your faith works best in community. It's hard to be a solo Christian out there by yourself, never interacting with other believers because God's designed you to live in community. God's designed us for more than just, and this is important, coming in here is very, very important, but it's just as important for us to get together with other believers outside of this context so that we can do community and strengthen each other's faith. So God calls us to use the shield of faith. And then 17, take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the helmet protects, from our perspective, the single most important thing, right? The helmet of a salvation. And that's pretty self-evident. But salvation is important for us to have to protect the very core of who we are. And God calls us to do that. And then the first and last offensive weapon listed, the sword. In our culture, we tend to think of swords from Conan the Barbarian, some sword that's like this tall off the ground and this massive... Okay, the ancient Near East, the Roman sword was just a sword about this long. It was a short sword called the gladius, right? And it was used so you could hold it over your shield and you could stab. And here was the goal right here, right? So I hold the shield up and I stab over top and I take it right over the other guy's shield and you get them right here and they bleed out in seconds. Real pleasant thought, right? And what is that sword? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. How sharp is our sword? How sharp is our sword? That's the only offensive weapon we have. If we're going to tell people about Christ, we need to know our scriptures, don't we? We need to know our scriptures, don't we? We need to have a sword that's sharp, a sword that cuts. How are we doing on that? Are you finding ways to get the scriptures into your life? Do you have a systematic way of going through the scriptures? Are we sharpening our sword on a regular basis? God calls us to do that if we're going to be great soldiers, if we're going to be good soldiers for him. So those are the tools. Those are the tools. And I think actually what Paul does, because he switches over to praying, and it's interesting because he never actually calls prayer one of the weapons, which I find fascinating. But he just says all of that needs to be bathed in prayer. So prayer in some ways is the most important thing. But he says this, verse 18. And there he's going to model, what I'm going to suggest is that Paul's actually modeling spiritual warfare here. Because for us, a lot of us, we get this imagery. Spiritual warfare is going out, casting out demons, right? Having some sort of ray shoot out of our palm and demons flying out of the eyes of people or whatever, or mouths of people. And that's all stuff from our culture and stuff from the movies and stuff from cable television. But Paul, I think, is modeling spiritual warfare for you and me. Because he basically says this. 
He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So if anybody in the New Testament could talk about casting out demons and doing really cool, miraculous things, and if that was spiritual warfare, he could have them praying that he could do that. But here you have a very, very, and I put this in air quotes, basic description of what Paul wants them to pray for. Does he want them to pray for him to cast out demons? No. Does he want him to pray that he would be able to do all sorts of miraculous things? No. What's he pray for? Pray that I speak the gospel. Pray that I speak the gospel. Brothers and sisters, spiritual warfare for you and me is working really hard at living the spiritual life in front of our friends and neighbors and then praying and opening our mouths to speak gospel. It's the greatest news in the world and we're called to share it. And notice, it's all about praying for that. You know what's really amazing? When you start praying for those opportunities, God gives them to you. God gives them to you. Not only that, I think God helps you see how many opportunities you actually have to do it. When I'm praying for opportunities, I see them all the time. Do I always take them? No. Do I try to do better? Yeah. But when I'm praying for opportunities to speak, suddenly God pops these opportunities up and I see them there and go like, oh, wow, this is great. I can step in and I can try to share the gospel. I think it's a fascinating way for him to end his book. Because what Paul does to end his book, this book, this letter, he's gone through the whole scope of salvation. And then he finishes with this call to spiritual warfare. But it's a very, very simple, basic plan. It's nothing fancy. It's you and I living for God, living holy lives, and sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors. I pray that we will seek to do that. Let me challenge you with several applications. One, are you in the war? Are you in the war? Or are you the battleground? Some of you might be here today and you might be the battleground. What do I mean by that? In other words, you might be between the forces of good in the world and the forces of evil. You may be the one who's sitting here going, you know, I've not embraced Jesus Christ as my savior yet. I feel being called to do that. I would encourage you to do that today. We would love to speak with you. We have plenty of people that will be down front in the beginning. Or maybe you're here with a friend. Or maybe you're here and you know an elder and you want to speak with them. Or you know whatever. Talk to somebody. Embrace the gospel today. Find freedom in Christ. Two. Have we defined, for those of us who are in the war, have we defined spiritual warfare properly? Are we fighting against people? Or are we fighting against the demonic spiritual influences on the backside of them? And are we looking at people that we know as the enemy or are we looking at those who need Jesus, who need our compassion and who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ? 
I'm going to make up a word here. Forgive me. Is there a general truthiness to your life? Are you committed to truth? Are you committed to speaking the truth? Are you committed to living the truth? You know, we have this discussion. Is Christianity about doing? Is it about believing? It's both. It's both. Can I challenge you that both of those put together is being? Right? When you believe something and you live it out, when you believe it so much that you live it out, that becomes part of who you are down in your bones because Christ will change you and changes you down to your core. And is that characterized by a kind of truthiness? And then the last challenge for the morning. Do we know how to use our sword? Are you getting to know this book better? Are you able to take somebody and go, hey, I've got a question about the scriptures. Do you know how to get around with this book? The easy way to start is just start reading. And then we've got plenty of opportunities here. You can get involved in Bible studies. You can get involved in extra courses around here. But are we able to use our sword? So, spiritual warfare. Sounds cool, but it's pretty everyday life. But let's do it for Jesus, yeah? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we want to understand spiritual warfare. Lord, help us to understand that what it really means is me going to work tomorrow and representing you. What it means is everybody here going to where you call them to go on a daily basis and representing you. I pray that you will help us to do that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.